Hello, Joel here. I've got a new book out. It's called Be Funny or Die. How comedy works and why it matters. And it's about how comedy works and why it matters. Why human beings tell jokes and then what that tells us about being human beings. So if you're a human being and you enjoy laughing and then want to know what the hell's going on with that, it's probably a pretty good book to read. It's called Be Funny or Die. It's in shops. You can buy it. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello and welcome to Rule of Three, a podcast about comedy. I'm Jason Hazley. And I'm Joel Morris. And as usual, we're joined by someone who makes comedy to talk about something funny that they love. By taking it apart, maybe we'll learn something about how comedy works, or we'll just quote bits from it and giggle until we're finished. Both approaches are valid. Our special guest today is the stand-up broadcaster, writer, actor and director, the staggeringly talented... Chris Addison. Oh, you're too kind. He's a quintuple threat, a sextuple threat. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I'm Nothing working on that. I'm working on my tap dancing. So, uh, <laughs> just to warn you. If I find out you next. can play the bassoon or something as well, I'll go. That fucking was my crazy. wife's instrument. She played the bassoon. Oh, really? So I'm, I can play the bassoon in law. I'm an oboist in law. Are you an oboist in law? Are you? Maybe we could get a, a wind quartet in law together. <laughs> and we could go down the pub. <laughs> You've just come off finishing a film or nearly finishing yes, a film? Yes, tomorrow I will do the last thing I have to do before I hand my homework in. And it has been, it's been a long process for, for basically admin reasons rather yeah. than creative reasons. But yeah, it's, it takes a long time to finish a film. So you finished, as in, you finished shooting? Finished shooting about oh, a year ago. Uh, and, oh, then, and then we edited it quite quickly. It's been ready for a long time, but it's been getting the fine... The, what happens is that every, you know, you, you've got all these people who are... Some people are doing your sound for you, some people... People are doing the vision stuff for you, and then you're tinkering around, and they go off onto different projects, and then you need another person to come in and do a music thing for you, and so in the end, it just becomes about diaries and yeah. getting everybody in the right place at the right time. Tomorrow, we have everybody in the right place at the right time, and I can hand my damn homework in. Hurrah! Yeah. Well, someone told me that I made a short film, and they said, "Have you have you got the post production in place?" And I went, "No, no I'm just going to go and make it." They went, "Oh, you don't." Yeah. Obviously, as a writer, you don't know what's. No. That's why. 
it's always useful to go and get your hands dirty doing another job. Yeah. And you, and you said, no, no, the, the, every film that's ever made founders on not having the budget in place for post-production. Absolutely. For grade and for sound. And Completely. For... And, they, and they do, they, that's where they will cut back on stuff often because, because people don't realise. I think it's generally not understood that that's where a film or TV show gets made. Yeah. So, in fact, uh, Matt Strevens, the producer of Doctor Who, is a fabulous chap, uh, said to me once, there are three places where the, you write the story. In the writing, in the filming, and in the editing. And the yeah. editing is the final and most powerful of those. But it's the one that nobody really knows about. I think the editing is one of the most unsung totally. uh, mm. skills in all of TV and film. People do not know what it is. And I think that possibly extends to people who budget. <laughs> because actually, it's such a, it's such a sort of hidden talent that, that, that it's, it's sort of left to the end in terms of when people are putting resources together, which is a shame because actually that is... You could edit something for absolutely ages. You could just keep doing it and doing it and doing it. I've got a friend who's a, a, a good friend who's an editor, and he said he has something in common with a writer. Is that he goes to the BAFTAs or the rap party and no one knows who he is. Yeah. And I find that as a writer... William Goldman said this about uh, the auteur theory. He said that people began to believe that directors made films on their own. Yeah. Because every oh. time a journalist went down on set, there was a guy pointing at stuff yep. and they assumed he was in charge. Yeah. No one saw the writer, yep. who was alone, yep. and no one saw the editor, who was also alone. Yeah. I completely agree. The auteur theory is such nonsense. It's absolute nonsense. I don't <laughs> care who you are. You Even can... though it would suit you at the moment to, to believe in it. Oh, yeah, completely would suit me to, <laughs> to, to believe in it. But I, if I ever put a Chris Addison film on something, punch me in the face. Because it isn't, is it? It's a massive team, even if you've written it and directed it. Actually, directing is a very important role. You're the keeper of the vision. You have uh, final say. In theory, actually, the producers have final say. But, you know, in theory, you have final say on everything uh, creatively. But in order to function, you have to gather around yourself the most fabulous people who are mm. incredibly creative geniuses. So I've got on my team, aside from the fact that I've got a brilliant writer, Jack Schaefer, who's she's a genius and I love her. Uh, I've got a phenomenal production designer, Alice Normington. I've got an amazing director of photography, Mick Coulter. Uh, I've got a brilliant conductor, a composer, Anne Dudley. I've got a phenomenal editor in Anthony Boyce. There's just so many people. Mm. Like All of those people by the way, are heading a department full of other people who are geniuses. So the idea that it is a somebody film is utter, utter nonsense. It's a strange thing, because what you've just done there, basically, was a micro version of every time you've heard a BAFTA speech. Right. Or an Oscar speech. Everyone yes, goes, I suppose. Oh, yeah. the team, and everyone at home goes, why? And what people don't understand is that the day-to-day process of making anything is that you spend your whole time surrounded by excellent people yeah. who pull your ass out the fire. Yeah, absolutely. The best way of approaching anything creatively, and you boys of all people know this, is in a collegiate way. Mm. And there's a great pull from your ego and the general <laughs> culture that allows for things like auteurship and mm. wanting to point the finger at an, and identify an individual as being the driving genius behind something. You want to sort of believe that. But the truth is, and so there are people people who want to do everything themselves fine fine yeah. Go, knock yourself out but there are a tiny handful of people who can actually do yeah. that you need people who are phenomenal at skills that take decades to fine-tune and you don't have that time <laughs> so you need you know even if you had the the, ba- the talent to base it on so yeah as a director you you are using the resources of other phenomenal people i mean here's the thing 
given that it is not possible to make a film on your own, basically, where does auteur come from? Is it is it the ego of someone whose name is on the first two or three cards at the front of the film? Yeah, I think to an extent it is that ego, and it's the it's really flattering if somebody says this is your film, you made it. It's really easy to go, yes, I I did, because fundamentally <laughs> we're all incredibly insecure, and it were it serves our sense of self worth and it helps keep some of the wolves at bay if you actually <laughs> accept that idea but also I think it's to do with the fact that it's useful to market it like that and it's useful yes. for us as fans to think of things in that way that there is a presiding genius behind it who who makes all of the decisions and the best of those presiding geniuses they have the final say but they don't make all, they don't it's not all of their ideas they yeah. you know some people are coming to them with ideas and they're going oh yes that one yeah but they're not generating those ideas necessarily themselves obviously i'm simplifying massively yeah. have you had that photograph taken that steven spielberg has taken of you in a hat pointing <laughs> yes, yes, yes. There are a lot of pictures of me. I mean, I, I gesticulate a lot as a is, human. Is that, so because I, I never realised when I was a kid, and I used to see that sort of film directed. I didn't realise that that was a day of the shoot. They, a guy would come and say, "Get a picture of Stephen pointing," because that's basically his publicity shot. It says who he is. Yes. In the same way as an actor, if you're James Bond, there's a picture of you holding the gun. It's your job. But I never realised that part of the marketing of a film is, "Can we get a picture of Stephen pointing?" Oh, so well, in fact, what you have is you have, and you'll see this on IMDb, or or if you're one of the people who, like me, has the time and respect to sit and watch the credits at the end of a uh, Listen, I know it's nerdy, but I've insisted with my kids at the end that we always stay to yeah. the end. What Good I man. do to them, what I do is I I, get, I buy it because they've seen so many Pixar's and I've gone, there's always a little kicker after the yeah, end yeah, crawl, yeah, you yeah, know. Yeah. But actually it's because I want you to see how many people made Absolutely. this thing happen. In, in BAFTA, which is a physical building as well as being a, as well as being a TV show twice a year, there is a, a fabulous uh, uh, cinema. Uh, and if you go to watch a film there, the rules are no eating, no talking, no phones, and you stay and you watch as All a respect for everybody who made the film. Correct. Which is quite o- as it also, should be. Because of Screenwriters Guild rules, my family have to stay and watch the end of any film I've been involved in because I'm thanked at the end rather than credited. Oh, that's a nice thank you. Uh, they're always a nice thank you, but my my mum and dad go, We well, didn't see you on the credits. I'm at the end. My name's next to Emma Thompson's, yeah. and it's right at the end, just before you get No Animals Were Harmed. Uh, that's where the writers go. That's so interesting. When we're not on mic, I want, I want, I want to ask you some questions about that. That's it's very, very interesting. But it's, it's, it's interesting because there is a maximum number of screenwriters and a lot of films these days yeah. are written uh, in a collegiate way like TV shows are. There's a Absolutely. writer's room. And there's no way of crediting that writer's room. So on some films, we're right at the end. And we may have been, alongside the editor and the director, the last people involved in the making of the film, Absolutely. right up to the end, with helping, helping with editing ideas and things like that. Yeah. But you're credited right at the end. I love that because it's usually after 4,000 special effects people. Yeah. Yeah. And my, my son's going, can we can we go now? Where's your name? I'm right at the end with the important people. <laughs> yeah. Well, I suppose there is that, isn't it? I'm right before they tell you that no animals were harmed Which in the important. making of this production. Yeah. Yeah. I'm about a hundred lines after the uh, catering unit, basically. Yeah. Yeah. But, but I'm there with Dolby, and that's important. Yeah, that is the mo- <laughs> that's the most important thing. But you will see on that list uh, stills photographer or unit stills. Yeah. And that person in our show, Christian Black, he's very good, very talented man. And he will be there every day getting pictures of action as it was happening you know yeah. was there actually yeah. t- uh, doing a take but also me pointing a lot of me pointing well, and I, just I, grew, I was addicted as a kid to behind the scenes it's a mm. thing that obsessed me and you could always buy those books the making of 
Ghostbusters or whatever. Yeah. And it'd be full of unit photographer shots of Bill Murray being wired up for things yeah, yeah, or a yeah, stunt yeah. being yeah. set up. Only when I grew up did I realise, oh, there's a guy taking those pictures. If I want to enjoy those lovely books of photographs of the yeah. making of Return of the Jedi, there's a guy who's made it so I can see how the puppets yeah. were done and things. I remember getting the first Star Wars annual when I was about six or seven. And there was no point in it where they talked about the Force or Jedis. They talked about production designers, catering. Really? Actors. It had Peter Cushing's filmography. And it was just an annual for kids that was all about production. And it reminded wow. me of when I went to see the Harry Potter tour. There's nothing magical in the Harry Potter tour. It's all about production design. At no point do they really? say to kids are a wizard. They say, would you like to work in practical effects? Would you like to be Great. a... It's a recruiting thing for the Great. film industry. It's, it's absolutely magic. brilliant, the Harry Potter thing. Oh, I'd love it to really go. Is it's re- it, I went there at Halloween and they get some of the people who are showing you around dress up as Death Eaters, as the baddies, right. and gold masks and skulls. <laughs> and, so things. Cool. and they rush at your kids. And your kids have got wands because they bought them from the shop or whatever. Kid, oh, any kid who goes to Harry Potter's got a stick in their hand. And they say, would you like to fight the baddies? And there's someone with a, with a mic and a, and a set of headphones on. They come and say, hello, I'm going to be the floor manager. I'm the director. If you were Daniel Radcliffe, this is what you'd do. And they don't say if you were Harry Potter. They say, here's the four movements you're going to have to do. I'll direct you. I'm the director. This is how you're in a scene as an extra or an actor. They treat the kids as part of the production. And I loved that because it meant, me, meant growing up, I, I read all these books and went, oh, I could do that. There's yeah. a job there. I don't think I could be Indiana Jones. And I don't think I could be a wizard, but I could definitely help yeah, out on a that. set. And I think that made me feel that I could go and be a writer. There's a book called Television Magic, which is similar to that. It was, must have been published in about 1980, I reckon. I like it already. Yeah, oh, and you can definitely, you can definitely still get it, uh, or you know, secondhand versions of it. And it is brilliant because it's explaining how everything goes down the cathode ray tube and how it comes out the <laughs> other end, and it demonstrates it with a picture of Kermit. And there's all sorts about floor managers and cameras, and and it's all about TV studios really, because this is the days when people didn't do single camera stuff yeah. on yeah. The, on vision on mixers. The yeah, yeah, all of that is there. The gallery, and it is completely thrilling. And I think also we grew up at a time when. And the idea of the surroundings that that stuff was made in was often featured in the shows in themselves. In Wise or Swap Shop or right. Blue Peter. Or, or if you th- yeah, Blue Peter's a brilliant example. Or the beginning of Fry and Laurie is then yep. going to Television Centre. Yeah, like the yeah. number of times you would see BBC Television Centre in a show when we were growing up. In the 10 years that I worked there, off and on, before they sold it off in a, one of the great foolish moves, <laughs> um, I never, ever went in without going, look at that. You know, looking at that wall absolutely. of Did you I make it. Ditto. Thick of It and Lab Rats were done there in a slap unit? Lab Rats was made in a slap unit. I'm which, was, which was the back, it was like the bum of the TV set of hidden away at the back. Oh, it was, wasn't a, it? it was great because there were signs. So, slap unit was Armando Iannucci had a sort of semi autonomous region, sort of like the Vatican in a way. <laughs> You're used to describe it as Minister Without Portfolio at the BBC. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's re- they just said, come and work in our place and make some stuff for us. So he set up a unit called Slightly Amusing Programs, or SLAP for short. And, and so there would be signs all around television centre saying SLAP unit. I can remember there being letters to Ariel, the in-house magazine of the BBC, in-house weekly newspaper, saying, what is SLAP unit? Why are there signs for it everywhere? Which was partly why he'd done the thing in the first place. Uh, and it was, it was between Strictly Come Dancing and Last of the Summer Wine. That's, yes. that's why I remember those offices as being. <laughs> I can remember because there's that, that the stairs on the exactly way. where the thick of it is. It sits exactly yep, between. between those two things. <laughs> That's how Armando pitched it. I think it's a cross between people, three people going down downhill in a bath, but in spandex and glitter. <laughs> yeah, I mean, think of it was made entirely on location, but we rehearsed it in Television Centre a, a, a little bit towards the end. 
And yeah, we made lab rats there in the Blue Peter studio, in fact. Really? Yeah. Yeah, and Knock the Week used to be there. And the- We once sat in a meeting in the last of the Summer Wine office, and well, there were all sorts of ideas up on this board about yeah. what the Compo and Cleggy and whoever else it was might do. And someone had added to the bottom of the list, Combo bursts puppy with his cock. <laughs> it was Kev Sessler, wasn't it? So, someone has was confessed it? to it. Had uh, they? It, it was either Sessler or Riley went, yeah, we used to add things to that board to see if... <laughs> I always like the idea that, that television was a sausage factory. And if you change the instructions or the code going to the sausage factory, yeah. they, they were such an automated system. The last time <laughs> I would just follow the instructions. <laughs> And like there, the there they would be in Homeforth with <laughs> a puppy right. going, is this? Well, we sure? got Ro- to this Roy, point? did you write this? <laughs> it sounds like Andy. I yeah. think Andy did that. Andy Riley, I, I, would, be, I would believe that. But equally, if you're going to put The Last of the Summer Wine next to the slap unit, that is... That is you are asking for trouble. But I, it was easy to fetishise that place yes. and feel like I'm in the I'm in the factory that made the fabulous stuff that I loved when I was a kid. Yes. That was very important, I think. So what, what made you want to do telly in the first place? Was it seeing other people making it in, in shows like that? No, I think I loved telly as a kid. Like I loved telly before I loved film. I can remember having an argument with James Smith, who p- uh, plays Glenn in the thick of it, and James is a, a big film buff. Like a he cineast. goes all the time. He's a <laughs> cineast, and he, like a lot of cineasts, sort of felt like Telly was the idiot brother. Yeah. And I've always felt that Telly is way better than film for all sorts of reasons. And now I think now that we're in peak TV, now that we're in this sort of post HBO, post Sopranos world where everything is incredibly high in production value and what have you, that's an acceptable thing to suggest. But yes. there was a long time where no, 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 don't be ridiculous. But telly, I loved it, loved it, loved it from when I was a child. I was obsessed by it. So the idea, I never thought about being in movies or anything. I always thought about being on telly. Did you fantasise about being front of camera or back of camera first? Uh, I think probably front of camera because I'm a performer fundamentally. Yeah. So I think that, yeah, it must have been. It must have been. They'll front make of my show. Yeah, well, I don't know. I don't think it was even as formed as, as that as a, an idea because I think it was just. Yeah, I think it was just. I love. I'd love to be in that building making a thing. Yeah. So I don't think I even had a. I don't think I even had an idea in my head about what that show might be. I just loved the idea of that of that world. I still feel it. Like if I'm watching something like Strictly Come Dancing, which I do religiously, uh, <laughs> what I love about it, even though it's made in Elstree now, there's something that f- just the, watching them in that kind of TV studio. I, I, there's something visceral for me about that. I love that atmosphere. It is fascinating. And again, when we were kids, you, everything that we watched was located in a studio. So Blue Peter was in a studio, and Tomorrow's mm. World was in a studio. And even, and we'll get onto this shortly, even the, the comedy shows that I, the, I loved, the sketch shows and so on, were in a studio. And they made a virtue of the fact that they were in a yeah. studio. And so, on. so actually, that physical environment to me is still utterly, utterly delightful. you've brought in to share with us is something made by someone who clearly had been raised by television yeah, and totally. wanted to share a love of television and what it could do and what it was incapable of as well as what it was capable yeah, of. Yeah, yeah. Um, so to tell us, what, what have you brought in? I share? have brought in Victoria Wood as seen on TV. <laughs> the phenomenal Two series only um, of sketch and, well, variety, really, uh, in some respects, show that Victoria Wood did. And it was such an incredibly formative piece of work for me. And it 
utterly stands the test of time. Absolutely. I think all of us Absolutely. here would agree with that. I think that this is a programme that I saw and went, wow, that's yeah. what you can do. May I ask what you're doing here? We've come about to test your babies on that. We want to test your baby. Why? Are there problems? We've only got a mazonette, so a little tiny test tube. <laughs> they grow to enormous size. They're conceived in the test tube. We'll never both fit in. <laughs> Watching it again, I was, you said variety. I'm stunned by it. I thought, oh, God, because it's a very trad BBC yeah. sketch show. It opens with her in stand-up. She does some stand-up. There's some songs. There are some sketches. But there's something about it that it doesn't feel like a, a 70s sketch show. It feels like something completely new. Well, one of the reasons for that, I think, is because it's, it's entirely her. Yes. So she wrote the whole thing, which doesn't usually happen with sketch shows. With sketch mm. shows, they are gang-written things. But Victoria Wood sat and wrote... I suppose it's six hours, six and a half, including the Christmas special, six and a half hours worth of sketch comedy herself. So it is variety, except that the variety is purely things that she can do, yes, right? Yes. So it isn't saying, here's a music act, and here's a stand-up, and here's somebody who's going to... She gonna... doesn't say, ladies and gentlemen, Barbara Dixon. No. She says, ladies and gentlemen, more of me. More of me, yeah. <laughs> yeah, because actually, it's fascinating. If you think about the route that she took to get to As Seen on TV. So she starts, the first time we, as a public, come across her, although we're all too young to have mm. seen this, uh, was her as a singer, her sing- a singer-songwriter doing sort of quite funny-ish songs. Uh, and that is how she was won... She- she was on New Faces. New Faces. And I looked it up, and I'd, false memory, I'd remembered she'd won New Faces. That's true. She didn't. No. She got knocked out in round two. Aidan J. Harvey, the impressionist, won New Faces that year. The public chose not to choose Victoria Wood. I'd always thought she was a talent show winner and an X-Factory kind of no. winner, but she's not. She just finished at Birmingham University uh, after gaining an honours degree in drama. You would expect her to go on possibly to the old Vic or somewhere like that, but no. Because on the day I might fade away and be... She was on a talent show and was too iconoclastic to make yeah. it all the way through. Yeah. It's ama- I think if she'd won, her career might have been very different. Well, it, it, I mean, it's a fascinating career because after that, she went and wrote a play. By invitation, she wrote a play called Talent. talent. Yeah. 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 And which ta- is about being on a talent show. Which is about being at a talent show, backstage at a sort of working man's club kind of talent show. That was eventually televised by Granada. And then she did a show with Julie Walters, Wooden Walters, which was one series, again for Granada, where she started to sort of take the sketch yeah. aspect of what she was doing and, and work on that, little pieces. And then it all synthesises beautifully, finally, in As Seen on TV. Mm. As Seen on TV feels like, it's the first time I ever saw her, and it felt like she'd arrived fully formed. But there is a journey that sort of starts ten years earlier um, of her getting to that point and everything that she's learned is contained within As Seen on TV even you could even make the, the argument that the first series of As Seen on TV she's still learning some of yeah. the craft and when you get to the second it's so slick and so different the one, to the, the, one to the to first watch. one while being the exact same the one to watch it's on, all on Netflix at the moment which is great it is yes uh, I, I got my DVDs out last night and then realised oh I didn't even have walked mm. to the shelf but the first episode of series 2 yeah. I dropped in because I like series 2s of things because people have usually found their fix yeah, so I thought absolutely. I'll see where she is episode 1 series 2 an episode is in a big silver two. jacket. None yeah. of it is shit. None of it is half formed. Everything that she represents, everything that she's going to represent in the nation's hearts is in that one episode. And it ends with the Ballad of Barry and Frieda, the legendary yeah. thing. It builds towards that. And you have forgotten, because you've seen her do that a load of times, the arrangement of that, where she's got like a trad jazz band yeah, behind her playing banjos. Let's do it. Let's do it. Share a nice world romance. Frenetic, poetic. This could be your last big chance. Stilton's rolling gay abandoned on the tufted wilt. Let's do it! 
that show is right. And she and Jeff Posner, who directed it, who yeah. did the most incredible job, yeah. have got everything right. And it is, I was blown away yeah, by a single episode. I went, that's it. That's that's what she could do. Well, she starts, so it's been off the air for a while. And she starts with the stand-up. Because the format was, as you say, she does like three and a half minutes of stand-up at the beginning of any given show. And then, actually, it's all to play for. Because yeah. she doesn't always end with a song. The song There's always yeah. a song, but it's sometimes placed in different... I'd misremember else. that. Yeah, it's, never, it's not always at the end. And they've made a decision based on any given song because again Victoria Wood being Victoria Wood she's not just writing a bunch of comedy songs so there are some bittersweet things which you couldn't end a show on or if you did it would yeah. be a very particular kind of decision you found one that you were playing to me this morning yeah you? one from the Christmas special um, which is a song which just isn't funny it's just very mm. dark and it's about how love is a difficult thing I think it's called I Don't Need You or something like You're that right. it's like something off Abba's The Visitors it's yes like extremely yeah, it's bleak really, it's really blue I've got friends I've got pals, some are chaps, and some are great big hairy gals, so I don't, no I don't need you. She is very bleak. So yes. one of the things that yes. people forget about Victoria Wood is that it's fascinating because she's so charismatic and so warm that you forget how bleak a lot of her comedy is. There's a lot of hopelessness in the comedy. So that almost every episode has a, a spoof documentary yes. with mm. Duncan Preston as Corrie. Which I think in a way. No one had done that that well before. Apart from one of my thumbs being double-jointed, um, I'm really a fairly ordinary man. Um... Jim is 32. He lives in an East Lancashire village with his mother, his sister and his brother. He is engaged to Pat and has his own telephone deodorising business. I think until they did The Office in the day-to-day, -day, I'd not seen a spoof documentary done as well. Maybe there's a couple of it's Harry Enfield, but the idea of getting the stock footage right, the voices right. Yeah. Duncan <clears throat> Preston's interviewer voice, which only occurred to me today, is the That's Life yes, voice. Yes, it is, yeah. And yeah. she was on That's Life, so you'd have heard those men talking like that. The rhythms of that, and probably not until probably John Morton and Chris Morris, did someone get that rhythm of how you do a documentary. And some of those, Billy, the one about the lonely old man, is yeah. just heartbreaking. Oh, it's awful. And the, fir the first one is the one about the, the, the girl who's going to swim the channel. Oh. And, uh, and these are my cups, trophies. Are you worried about tomorrow? Well, I am in a way because uh, I've never swum such a long way and some of it's in the dark. And I don't really like the dark. And, and if, if, I, if I do get to French coast, I don't talk French very well. So I don't do French, I do woodwork. God, with the mum and dad who yeah. just don't even notice she's gone. Yeah, and so, you know, so the, the girl's dead at the end of that. Yeah. She's, she swam off the channel, been abandoned by her parents who don't give a shit about where she's going to go. Well, it's the night before your daughter swims the channel. Any misgivings? I don't think so. Have we, Cliff? No. No, she's as strong as an ox. You'll be in the backup boat, presumably. Well, no, actually, Joan and I popped me down to London for the day. You know, sort of day out shopping. We'll probably take in a show. And it's, there's no punchline to it. She's dead. There's not a, like, <laughs> that is a punchline, but not a very nice one. Yeah, I mean... They're, they're, <laughs> it's the universal punchline. Is the, yeah. <laughs> wow, that's a great way of thinking of it. Um, could we rewrite? I think that she's... It's all about rhythms with her. So everything with Victoria Wood is about modes of speech and um, yep. modes of expression. So every one of her characters, she, she's listened to how a particular kind of person talks and has synthesised it beautifully and often very viciously. That's the other thing. It's vicious. Yes. A lot of her comedy yep. is really vicious. And again, she's so warm. She's so lovely. And it's so 
utterly charming that you don't really notice. It's a proper rock under a velvet cloth. I think yeah. people, I made a note of this last night. I watched it and went, her stand-up persona is really warm and chummy. That chumminess that we all shop at the same shops, we're all together, that's been mistaken for her. But that's yeah, her yeah. stand-up persona. Yeah. She is the person who wrote 400 sketches. She's steely. She said about Pat and Margaret, the play yeah. she wrote yeah, for yeah, her yeah, and yeah. Julie Walters, which is about a showbiz, fame-seeking missile, and her estranged a, a sister who, lived, who works sister. as a right, yeah. service station waitress. And Victoria would have admitted, she said, the Julie Walters character is me, but I wrote myself the warm lower status character but yeah. actually there's more of me in the higher status character than yeah. the lower status she was aware of it because she wouldn't be famous she wouldn't be running her own show unless she was an incredibly focused incredibly intelligent steely mind yeah uh, but that which is true of anybody in that in that world it totally. has to be said it's not she's not exceptional oh, I'm, saying, that, not, but, I'm not saying it's, but, a, it's a nasty as in for her to be able to do this she couldn't be that bumbling self-deprecating person oh, no. at the stand-up and I think that some of the if there's a negative side to Victoria Wood, it's the fact that she eventually became regarded as a mumsy national treasure. And I don't think she ever was. Oh, no, no, no. Because I think she... It's the bleakness that I first remember when I when I think about Victoria totally. Wood. It's that and the the voices that she's using when she's... You know, Kelly Marie Tonstall and, <laughs> or, yeah. or uh, Gail and Carl. Kelly Marie Tonstall is sitting with a friend at a bus stop and she's talking like that, right? You know, she didn't. She did. Oh, my God. <laughs> I did. So I come out of Tyler's and he says, Hey, scallop face, your skirt's all caught up and your knickers at the back, said the pity. And do you know why? He says, Why? Because that was Bill Eddie's fashion read it in the book. He says, What book? He said, Vogue, that's what book. <laughs> he says, Oh, likely, likely, when do you read Vogue? He said, When I'm in hospital having exploratory surgery, that's when. So he said, Oh, he did. He did. <laughs> and it's all of that stuff. And it is. She's and standing with Bridget so, Christie, which I find really weird. It does weird. look like Bridget Christie. <laughs> it's really odd. It's before um, Lauren, I'm a bothered. Yeah. Uh, and it's before Vicky in Little Britain. Yeah. But she is absolutely the big sister of those of those characters. Yes. And in the same way, it takes the sounds of somebody talking like that beautifully and twists it ever so slightly. She does it with everybody. But in doing that, she is saying, I know what you sound like and you sound ridiculous. And that is, that is a vicious thing to do. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. There was a beautiful 
beautiful. It might have been slightly before she died, but she talked about her upbringing. And she grew up uh, in a lonely house mm. on, it was an RAF observing station right. that had been broken up into separate rooms. She her was mum kept going up, finding bits of plasterboard and strapping them to the roof of the mini and bringing them back to the house and just kept <laughs> partitioning the house like some kind of compulsive behaviour. Wow. And she lived in one of those rooms with a television and a piano. She described it as, I lived with a television, a piano and a sandwich. And she sat in this room alone the family never interacted she just said it was a very dysfunctional family her dad was a wrote radio plays and oh, eventually right. worked for Corrie which I didn't realise which is a perfect oh that makes a lot yeah. of sense but he would sit in one room my mum was in the other room she said the family never met never ate together never did anything communal together she sat on her own watching television was raised by television so she's a loner and she's a listener and she's shy and said, weirdly, she's become a stand-up because a stand-up's a good thing for shy people because you're in control of a room yeah, yeah. that you'd otherwise not be yeah. in control of. But there's an enormous bleakness to her upbringing that would lead you naturally to think she'd become an incre- like a Scandinavian playwright or something. It's very, very <laughs> without hope. I don't remember having any friends. I don't remember anybody coming to the house or anything like that. The social life hadn't really kicked into gear. And then it never did because then we went up to this big house on the hill. And nobody came to tea at all. We had to bribe people to come and visit because it was a mile and a half walk from school. But what she's got in common with a lot of great studiers, especially northern studiers of mode of speech, is she gets mistaken for working class because she's northern. But she's not. She's middle class. Her dad and her mum are middle class people. Her mum's a student and her dad's a white collar job. She's middle class. And what she's got that in common with Alan Bennett and the other people of Viz and the Donald Brothers are from a nice bit of Newcastle. They didn't go to the big market because they were the rough kids. They watched the rough kids. Yeah, I don't ever think of her as being... I've never mistaken her for being working class. I've, in the sense, in that I've always thought of her as a chronicler of the middle classes, far more than of, suppose, of working yeah. class. Yeah. Yeah. Lower middle class, she's got absolutely skewered. Well, Actually, in Kitty, I suppose, is up and Completely, right. So, But I grew up around where she grew up, as a middle class northerner. And so I grew up around the people making those sounds so it's sort of like it, it's like it's like watching when I watch the royal family yeah like I know those people I've met an awful lot of those people they're not exactly my family but that's that sound that those people make that's where I'm from and so Kitty Kitty from Cheadle Cheadle is a posh-ish yeah. part yeah. of South Manchester uh, so I know who Kitty from Cheadle is who by the way predates Hyacinth Bouquet yeah good evening my name's Kitty I could have married, I've given gallons of blood and I can't stomach whelk, so that's me for you. (laughs) I don't know why I've been asked to interrupt your televiewing like this, but I'm apparently something of a celebrity since I walked the Pennine Way in slingbacks in an attempt to publicise mental health. (laughs) What's so fascinating about Victoria Wood is that she knows that she can write the best lines, and they are the best lines. She is, I think, arguably the best writer of comedy dialogue in the last 50 years. I just, yes. I think she is a genius. Yeah. She writes one-liners. Everyone is utterly in character yeah. and it's drama and it's heartbreaking. Yeah. But there's not a moment that she's not in the key of comedy. Oh, and completely. I find that stunning because that yeah. is a skill. To not break the reality of her characters, even though they're delivering zinger after zinger after zinger, is something American sitcoms do, but most British sitcoms, when they go for realism yeah. and naturalism, will not stoop to going gag, 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 gag. And she's a machine gun. But then, but see, but to do that and then to go, this isn't for me, this is for somebody else. Somebody oh, else needs to, to be performing this. This is for Julie Walters, Patricia this, Ratledge, Susie yeah, Blake. Yeah, uh, that is a phenomenal skill. It really is, isn't it? I was That that struck me when I was watching it because I was thinking about one of, one of my favourite sketch series, a bit of Fry and Laurie. Um, mm. In the last series, I think, they started having guests on who acted in the sketches and sometimes neither Stephen nor Hugh would be in a sketch and someone else would do it. 
Brian Laurie's material doesn't sound good coming out of anybody else's mouths. Yeah. Victoria Wood's material sounds good across her entire rep company. Yeah. Everybody can sound good when they're saying her lines. Except, except, I, cho- <laughs> I, would, I would say, yes, everybody in her rep company can. She's chosen them well. But not everybody can do it. And that definitely happens in a scene on TV. So if you watch, there are bit players who come along and they don't oh, right. hear what she's asking them to say they don't get it right and it feels like they're reading the lines the best people are Patricia Routledge Julie Walters Susie Blake Celia Imri and the reason she kept working with those people is because none of them sound like they're reading the lines it's an interesting thing and you'll you'll have encountered this so if you're casting something I'm casting or we've been casting a thing recently and the writer has a particular voice and there's one line in the script and I know that if the person coming in doesn't say that line properly, I know that it's game over because it's like a, it's like the key that unlocks yeah. the entire voice yeah. of, of, of the thing. And I think that there are a lot of bit players in As Seen on TV, which is which is to its credit yes. that actually to make things like the documentary work and so forth, mm. they've gone, well, we can't just have our regulars be all the characters all the time. We need some outsiders. Some of them are amazing and read um, is incredible. It just it goes to show that you can't just write something and it'll everything will be okay. There has to be a, a facility that people have. A they have to understand. Of, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and what's extraordinary about Victoria Wood is she knew. Okay, um, it's sort of like I was talking to a uh, doing a lot of classical music stuff, and I was talking to a conductor who I was saying, why is there more than one recording of a modern piece of work where the composer has recorded it themselves as the conductor? And he said, because they're not always very good conductors. <laughs> And uh, uh, sometimes, actually, you just need somebody else to come along and interpret the work. And and I talked to a composer the other day. I said, are you conducting? He said, oh, no, 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 that that will be somebody else. I'm not I'm not good at that. I'm not good at that. So he's going to give his, yeah, give his beautifully crafted thing over to somebody else on the understanding that that person will have a better chance of interpreting and expressing it in a way that is to its greatest benefit. Victoria Wood did exactly that with her rep company, which is great because it's great from sort of two directions. On the one hand, you know the voice you're writing for and it makes it easier for you to write for that voice. And on the other hand, you know that whatever you write, you've got some people who understand the deep rhythm that goes beneath it. The giveaways, she doesn't take the central role in Acorn Antiques, which you'd think yeah. normally you'd go, well, this is her show and this is a big signature sketch that would be enormous fun to be running the antique shop. Absolutely. But she takes a small role. She's Miss Babs. Yeah. Well, she is, in fact, if I may correct you, Miss Berta. Oh, and Miss Babs so is Celia sorry. Emery. I but, will leave. But, but she, would you? But she, uh, I just knew that people would be writing in. She's often not even in an episode of Eight Antiques. Yeah. Mm. She, she's not in it that often. Um, it is, as you say, mostly it's mostly Julie Walters and Celia Imri. Going back to those the the lines and, and Kitty from Cheadle and all of that, it is remarkable how she knows that like Patricia Rackledge doesn't do anything else in that entire show. Yes, it's, she only comes in as Kitty, and Kitty's. Kitty turns up maybe five times over the whole thing, five or six times in total. And she knows the benefit of, no matter how good she is, only using that person for that one thing Actually, and yeah. letting that if, exist if as Kitty, it is. If Kitty turned up in Acorn Antiques and bought a vase, yeah. it would fuck up Kitty. Yeah, She's better that you sort of think that character's real. 
<laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I remember it was the first time I'd seen Patricia Routledge, and I didn't know. I so I didn't know who she was. So she is sort of forever Kitty for me, and it is a it's a completely it is a, an astonishing performance. That the amount of faith that Victoria Wood has in in her is demonstrated in the fact that there's that phenomenal one where she keeps drinking sherry as she's talking, yes. and she gets drunker and drunker and drunker, and she does good drunk acting, which is mm. rare. Oh, hello. <laughs> Buffy for the last programme. She gets drunker and drunker and drunker, and the punchline is her forgetting a line. So, in other words, the punchline is space. Oh, wow. And that is almost impossible to pull off the cojones that it takes to to say, that's how we're going to end our sketch, in a really unconventional way that has no rhythm. There's no point, there's no rhythmic point where the audience can go, there's your laugh moment. It is actually, the audience now have to just slowly realise what's happened. Wow. And they're going to do that over an amount of time so the laugh is going to grow rather than come in a big That's wave. trusting a performer-trusting audience. It's remarkable. Before I leave you, I must say I have much love coming here every week to put your ride. And I'd just like to pass on a piece of advice given to me by a plumbing acquaintance of my father's. <laughs> it's an old Didsbury saying, I've never forgotten it. <laughs> Kitty, coming from that class and, and being a comic monologue is the key to something Victoria Wood saw Joyce Grenfell mm. as a kid and went, I want to do that. And Kitty is a Joyce Grenfell monologue. It's, it's upper yeah. middle class, it's aspirational, it's a single woman doing a thing where you're reading and inferring between the lines. Where I live, people are very narrow. They lead very little lives. You know, None of them use their front rooms. <laughs> well, they've all got them, you know, but they don't use them. A woman in my church said to me the other day, she said, it's no good you're going on about us all being the same. I mean, I look in the mirror, I'm pink. They look in the mirror, they're brown. I mean, we're different, we're meant to be different, she said. And I thought to myself, well, I'm quite glad I'm different from you. <laughs> well, she's got some very funny false teeth. I shouldn't have said that. My mum loved Joyce Grenfell, and we had Joyce Grenfell records in the house. And then Victoria Wood turned up, and both me and my mum went, that's the same thing, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. We recognised the line that went yeah, through. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I'm reading somewhere in an obituary who said it may surprise people that Victoria Wood was influenced by Joyce Grenfell because Joyce Grenfell is so sort of genteel and, and of a certain class. And you go, you're misreading everything here. They're yeah. both observers of the class around them. And Joyce Grenfell's got people around her, WI, the Aster set, and yeah. she just skewers them from the side. Yeah. And Victoria Wood... The people around her are just taken there with sniper shots. Yeah. They're exactly the same and they use the same techniques. Precision, being astonishing observers. The common line that runs through those two is, and it's not to do with women in comedy, it's to do with, I think, they have the same toolkit. From a ridiculously early age, you thought, I want to yeah. do what Joyce Grenfell does. Yeah. So one woman standing on a stage, her only prop was a frock, mm. and away <laughs> she went. Yeah. It was very, very deeply embedded in me that I would be good at something and it was something to do with that it was something to do with comedy even from quite a young age I would sit at the piano and I would twist round as if there was an audience so you could do it I could do it really in my own bedroom not to keep banging the drum but I suspect that that obituary will have been written by a southerner because it is often the case that northernness is mistaken for a class as opposed yes. to a geographical origin <laughs> you know that, that's the whole point is that Victoria Wood is very close to, to Joyce Grenfell in that she's she's talking about often she's talking about the same class it is to do with things that they have in their in the toolkit including precision 
there's a certain yeah. specificity that Victoria Wood has that is the golden seam through through her humour, which is that she knows exactly the funny choice of shop or biscuit, biscuit or or whatever. Here's and a here's a line I wrote down from a sketch. It's a woman describing this is Julie Walters in character talking about how she's going to have her hair dyed. I decided to go a shade mad. It being the smoked meat purveyors buffet and mingle at the weekend. <laughs> Brilliant. Where did you find mingle? That's amazing. Yeah, as you were saying, Joel, it's it's observing, it's knowing that that's a that's a funny word. But what she does, the reason it's all funny, and the reason specificity is funny, is that it's finding a grand frame and putting something ungrand inside that frame. So pathetic. the same, yeah, it is pathetic. So it's the same thing as. It's why local news is funny. Local news is funny because local news takes the form of important, big news that is about war and famine and the end of the world. But it's actually talking about bins. But it's doing it with the same kind of graphics and in the same tone of voice. And that is why that is so funny. And what's happening in Victoria Wood's sort of very specific world is she's taking these things that people are talking about are of deep importance to them. Each character is really, really, really means what they're saying and it's the most important thing to them at that moment. But the fact is that they're talking about an Abbey Crunch biscuit. I was really impressed because you remember Victoria Wood, you know, well, you remember Econ and Teaching with kids, yeah. and you remember the two-handers uh, with her and Julie Waters, which are kind of like Pete and Dove. They just sit at a cafe table and fire at each other. Yeah. I knew all those. The thing that surprised me is the pure sketches, the sketches that could have been on Smith & Jones oh, yeah, or Dave yeah, Allen, yeah, yeah. which yeah. she is an equal of any sketch writer yeah. with. Uh, there's a sketch she does which could have been in any other sketch show in the sense that it's uh, that's not damning at the frame price. It's just a good sketch. And it's just... She's, Jeff Posner has booked her some opera singers. Oh, yes, yes. And they do, they, they, Susan Blake he throws across to now some opera from Glyndebourne or whatever, and it's two proper Italian opera singers yeah. doing full high Italian opera. And at the end of it, the subtitles reveal they're singing about her not being able to get some trousers from Topshop. That's right. And it ends with her saying, I'm pig sick, Dennis. And the joke is that the subtitles go, I'm pig sick, Dennis. And the singer and the subtitles say Dennis at the same time. So you realise she's not re-subtitled some Italian opera. She's actually got some Italian yeah. opera singers to sing about Topshop yeah. trousers. It's it, just... <laughs> Beautiful. Yeah, they are. They're, they're extraordinary. Those sketches. This is what's so fascinating about her. Is there's no. There's a, the loosest of formats to that show. You don't know what she's going to do next. Sometimes Surprise. it'll be a one-liner. Yeah. So they will have built a set. There's one where. <laughs> <laughs> they've built they've built a whole sort of gym changing room or, or theatre backstage changing room that's what it is isn't it and then um, Celia Emery's sitting there eating Maltesers and Victoria Wood comes in and goes uh, chocolates before the performance or whatever it is <laughs> and she goes oh shut up I've just had a blazing row with Adrian and that's the that's the end of it <laughs> and they've built a set and it's really funny and they've built a set for it have you seen the Corona- have you seen the Coronation Street parody which looks to me like they actually filmed it on 1960s cameras which wouldn't surprise me yeah, because that's the yeah. kind of thing Effort that Jeff Possum would do it's amazing it looks sensational and all it is is just three characters talking absolute northern crap yeah total nonsense <laughs> in this bugutch to last me from Weatherfield Viaduct to Whip Wheat Wall. It's a lovely milk stout, Ian. By the thump, Minico, while you take the bomb, can't oh, you? Oh, leave it be, Sharples. <laughs> and then you can pick up some very interesting conversations if you keep your hair net jammed up against Vestry Wall. Keen of Sharples, you won't be out mangle when they handed out stair rods. That's the, that basic gag that John Finnamore does it very well, which is what television looks like That's when you're what tired. I thought, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah they they are, are, but you yeah. detune and it's just the rhythms it's a yes. beautiful it's a, that's a pure bucket sketch it's got 
It's jabberwocky. Yeah. It's the shape of a thing. Yeah. But you put gibberish into it, but yeah. it still maintains the shape of it. They're, but doing that with a Corrie sketch, you go, that's brilliant sketch writing. There are a thousand things that you could do, or that I would think cliched Victoria Wood would do with doing Corrie. And just filling it with gibberish, yeah. I think, surprised me. I went, oh, but this is, you could do one of your things where it's elaborate character comedy. Yeah. Because that's what happens in Corrie. But she's gone, no, I will fill it with high-grade rhythmic gibberish. Yeah. Yeah, like with, with the, in the Doctor Who parody, and you oh. know, and Jim Broadbent. Who's, the greatest who's, who's Doctor Who. Whose costume <laughs> is a thing to behold. It's fucking, it's like bits of all the other Doctor's costumes. It's literally patchwork together. And, he, you know, and he, write, he comes in and there's some large monster there and he says, oh, it's my old enemy, Crayola. And you go, yeah, you're not letting us move, are you? Who is it, Doctor? I'm not very bright and I haven't got my glasses on. It's my old enemy, Crayola. It's been a long time. I'll keep him talking. You creep around behind him and disconnect his bladamite tubing and neutralise his thermal load. But, Doctor, we haven't got the Ming Mongs. In that case, I'll creep around behind him and you show him your operation scar. <laughs> In a fairly ordinary man, you know, that little mini-documentary from the first series, yeah. even though it's looking really bleak and it's about a born-again Christian going yeah. door-to-door, yeah. he's still going to the Elbow Cafe on Abattoir Street. <laughs> yeah. You know? yeah, 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 yeah. It's that- all details. She's, it's, and, and so often in the costume. <laughs> I wrote this down to talk about, actually. The best example of it... Where, where people finally do notice is Acorn Antiques. Because you, you know Miss yeah. Berta's ridiculous sort of <laughs> jacket that she has, which is yeah. bursting at the buttons. Yes. But there's an episode where they turn Acorn Antiques into a leisure centre. Oh, Mrs. God, Overall yes. comes in, comes in in like leggings and this yellow leotard. And Julie Walters has taken that leotard and jammed it right up a twerp. And you can, you can see it. It's there. It's all there for you to see. And it is hilarious. But, all, but they do it all the time. Acorn Antiques is the perfect thing in the sense that there are, there are, she lets herself go with all layers can be doing jokes oh, so there are a couple, of, there are a couple you, of prop hands swinging the psych behind you've asked someone to stand in the background doing that in case I'm not entertained enough by the dialogue the characters the plot yeah. the costumes the makeup every department is yeah. turned up to ten or an antiques but yeah. actually they're not turned down to two and everything else they're all at about seven all the time. No, but yeah. it's just in Acon Antiques, you get, I mean, it's, you, there is nowhere you can hide. Nowhere is safe in Acon Antiques. There no. are jokes at the expense of everything yeah. production, acting, writing, yeah. props, camera work. You know, yeah. the cameramen are allowed to fuck about and yeah. miss things. And, yeah. you know, when Julie Walters comes in and she's standing yeah. behind a lampshade, and so yeah. they've got to film the lampshade. And there are jokes that people miss in Acon Antiques. Like, because, because you don't really watch it in a, in a room, you don't notice that it's the same elderly couple who leave at the yes. beginning of every yes. single and the more layers she adds the funnier it gets so yeah. when she does the behind the scenes in Acorn Antiques and adds Paul Heine and her documentary Paul making Heine. techniques so you've got two extra layers on yeah, top yeah, yeah, yeah. every one of those layers yeah. is rinse for every joke yeah. and you've got, got Maggie Steed as the, the producer and do I spy a new tray? come on Bo yes. improvise yes I just had to bring it in to show you look Clifford it's magnificent shall we cut? go back? no we professionals notice Joe Public never clocks a damn thing. Apparently, if you bump into Maggie Steed, she will recite that sketch still it's to this day. It's the favourite thing she's ever done. The bit in there that I don't think I clocked properly before is just how good Celia Imrie is in the rehearsal. <laughs> you know when they're doing the rehearsal? Yes, yeah. Simon? Yes, Simon? Tea break? Yeah. Simon? Yes? She's amazing. <laughs> the interesting thing for me about rewatching Acorn Antiques in the last couple of weeks is that the jokes about production are the most successful jokes, and the jokes about writing are the least successful jokes in it. So actually, 
um, all of the stuff about you know the triplets or people returning from Spain yes. or, or all of the, the crazy plot points go for a laugh but the, maybe it's actually if you think about it from a really technical point of view even though the, they're parodying stories they aren't in themselves stories yes. and we the audience are not clear on what's going on because yes. part of the joke is that she's jumping through the stories yes. and you're not really supposed to know where you are the outcome of which is we don't know where we are so as yeah. an audience we can't grab hold of those jokes in quite the same way like, you're behind the curve all the time on those so as we know as you, you guys know more than anybody all of those things about the rules about jokes that you think oh this would be great if we, we make this character who's hilariously boring no no that's just going to be boring yeah, yeah. if we're boring on screen it's boring it doesn't Confused. matter how much you think it's going to be funny things so, that are confusing are just confusing are just confusing and that's why those jokes go for a laugh but not as big a laugh whereas when you're suddenly behind someone's head or, or the prop isn't in front of them when it needs to be in front of them and they're just sort of looking at each other and carrying on with the dialogue anyway. <laughs> it's it's hilarious. Those are the things that are, that Actually, are the, the biggest laughs. The writing jokes that get the biggest laugh, you're right, I never thought about this, the writing jokes that get the biggest laugh are the opening line mm-hmm. because you, mm. you know where you are. You're in a yeah. shop. So, so it certainly sounds like a real Picasso but I'd have to see it to be sure. Yes, yes, uh, yes. this Blue Boy, do we have that in mode? I'll have a look. <laughs> yeah, that's one of <laughs> my your, favourites. I love that. Here's your 33p change. Enjoy your antics. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> works uh, in character but she works in pure absurdism that lovely sketch where yeah. where Julie Walters is running the shoe shop flatter, oh, now. flatter now hens in the skirting boards you're going this is as insane a sketch as anyone has ever written this is a sketch I'd expect to see in Bang Bang It's Reeves and Mortimer yes yeah. absolutely and she what she knows though is that is she knows that she's got this extraordinary clown at her disposal. Yes. And so she's going to do some phenomenal things. And Julie Walters, it's it's sort of boringly cliche to explain how brilliant, go on about how brilliant Julie Walters is, but it, it's well worth what going back and watching the shows purely for her because her performances are utterly, utterly remarkable. The timing yeah, really and the layers are phenomenal and what I love about her and this is why she's prepared to walk onto the set of Acorn Antiques with a camel toe <laughs> is because she knows that the key to comedy is making yourself ugly and yeah. and foolish yeah, yeah. and she is more than happy to make herself Mrs. ugly Overall and foolish in is it. the grandmother or the auntie of Mrs. Of Mrs. Doyle, Doyle no question yeah. no Pauline McClinton does the same thing yeah yeah, yeah. and, that, and it's, re- it's really important that people do that so the, so the, the shoe shop sketch for the, for the nice ladies and gentlemen at home the joke that we're talking about is Victoria Wood who's being the straight person in the sketch yeah. the sketch that she wrote for herself she's yeah. being the straight person she walks into a shoe shop she's looking to try on a pair of shoes that are in the window Julie Walters is the sort of mad assistant like Marty Feldman like yeah yeah, yeah she's sort of assistant. well she does this thing Julie Walters where she she sort of she scrunches her face up and she lifts her shoulders yeah and so and, and sort of makes herself kind of hunchbackish. she goes to find a pa- the pair of shoes from the window display and brings them back and uh, Victoria says those aren't the ones that I wanted they're flat because she's got some stilettos so she breaks her stilettos off and goes flatter now <laughs> and that's a very very funny joke but what's amazing is watching her go and get them out of the window. Yeah. yeah. Because she walks up the sort of stepped display, causing maximum chaos, without appearing to mean to cause yeah. maximum chaos, which is quite hard to do, and, and brings them back. Everything she's doing, the physicality of it, and Victoria Wood knew that she could do that. Imagine the two soups sketch written down. Yeah. Imagine yeah, you're yeah. a producer... And somebody comes in with a two soup sketch, and it's just a couple having a conversation uh, at a table. And then uh, they're going to order two soups, and the waitress is going to bring them. But she's very old, so the soup has gone out of the we'll soup has gone out of the bowl. bowl. 
That's it. Unless you know who's going to be doing that, you wouldn't say, yeah, we'll, we'll definitely build a set and, and, and do that. That's a guaranteed laugh. But she knows, Victoria Wood knows and Posner knows, that Julie Walters will make that the most famous sketch in that entire yeah. run, yeah, of, yeah. It's run brilliant. of shows. But it's you, you unbelievable. Look at it, it's she makes her back funny so so julie walters walks to the walks to the kitchen incredibly slowly she's not facing us she can't do anything with her eyes she can't do it make any expression that we can read easily that's funny something she makes her back funny she's a witch Actually, a witch is right. I was thinking she's a jester. She's a pure medieval she's a clown. She's a total clown. She, she is someone, and I think what we're looking at here with, with Victoria Wood and with Julie Walters in this as well, and actually probably extended it into Celia Emery yeah. and things, all these people eventually became national treasures. Yeah. And you look at them, and the thing with the national treasure is you go, oh, I'm not, it's, it's boring. They became the kind of people that Victoria Wood was taking the piss out of on television yes, because they became part of the furniture. And you forget the raw, appalling talent that was in them Right up until the point where you took them for granted. Yeah. And I think one of the things that I was reading obituaries and, and things about Victoria Wood this morning, and I cried in the kitchen because I f- had forgotten how much her death had upset me. Oh, it was awful. She was so important to oh, me growing yeah. up. As an example, I didn't want to be a performer. I wanted to be a writer. Yeah. She is an amazing advert. Yeah, there weren't many people who were just that dense with oh, their words. I understand the outpouring of a... Bowie, I completely get it, but Victoria Wood was that was for yeah. me the way that most people felt about Bowie going. That was yeah. when Victoria Wood went. That was just it was shattering because she blew my world apart. She was part of a thing when I so I discovered her. Uh, my grand lived with us, and she and I used to watch it. My parents and my brother and sister were watching something else downstairs, but we we used to watch Victoria Wood. It was sort of our thing that we did, and. Uh, it came at the same time within sort of three years I discovered her and the goons and Billy Connolly and it, it completely rewired my brain those people amongst them she she was utterly remarkable and I'm very pleased that I saw her first on a scene on TV because I yeah. think it is just a, a stunning piece of work I think she went on and made unbelievably brilliant things yeah. after yeah. it but it's a phenomenal piece of work because it exists at a point in an artist's career where they have totally learned their craft they are absolutely on top of everything and they've got all the energy and all the ideas and all the fizz she kept trying new stuff plays and music and things loads of different modes and you she's angry when she stopped from doing it that ter- the finale of yeah the christmas the christmas special of Vancey on tv she opens the show by saying um well, this is just by my way of saying I'm taking uh, uh, a reti- I'm retiring from uh, comedy, and the audience goes ah, oh! and she says uh, I've taken a role in uh, that's my boy, <laughs> right? And then she says that's a needlessly cruel and vicious joke, isn't it? I think we'll keep it in. And what she's actually then she goes on to say is actually the truth is we've been axed, and she is not fucking happy about this. Yes. She then goes into a There's routine. There's a ripple of nervous laughter from the audience going, "Is this going but to she a joke?" Is and not it's happy. Sort of isn't. And of course, it happened again. There was a point at which she had a she got a show which was meant to go out on Christmas Day. Oh yes, it was a sketch oh. show, and it was all designed around Christmas Day. All the and trimmings. someone, and I think probably all of us in this room know who, bumped it to Boxing Day. Yeah, she never forgave the BBC for that, and that is ridiculous because if you've got Victoria Wood, you don't chod bin her fucking program by moving it to a day when it doesn't work as well as the day on which it was meant to be shown. God made the world, this lovely world, the precious sea and sky. The sun that shines, the stream that winds, each cloud that passes by. 
God made each flower, each blade of grass, each tall and sturdy tree. He made this lovely anorak especially for me. The truth is that it's what you're saying about what's so brilliant about her is it's line for line. Yeah. Those lines, every one of those lines, you could take it out and... You know when you're eating something that's so delicious that every bite you go, oh, oh, and you point at the stuff that's yeah. just like, oh, yeah. this thing, and then you carry on talking to whoever it is and then you eat another bite and go, oh, 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 oh. <laughs> I think her lines are like that. You can take any yeah. one of her lines out and go, that... Is yep. exquisite. Trying to sound as if I had nail varnish on. That was one <laughs> I was left out. Trying to stand, yeah, that's phenomenal. And there's, and there's a brilliant one that um, in Acorn Antiques, um, which and it's just one word, and I don't even know whether this is in because the word change is funny or whether it's meant to be a joke at the expense of the, the actor not being able to remember the line, which is, okay. um, I'll make some sherry, Miss Babs. Yeah. I'll make some yeah. sherry. Oh, yeah. No, I'll get some. I'll make some sherry. Yeah. Well, she, she's always making, yeah. she makes coffee at some point. I hope some of my homemade coffee. Well, uh, from that point of view, absolutely, that's a hill I will die on. Yeah. Comedy is drama, but harder. Yeah. No question. <laughs> I will absolutely die on that hill. It's really, really, really hard to be funny. It's way, way harder to be funny than it is to be tragic. You can be tragic so easily. Put a kid on screen and then do a scene where something awful has happened to the kid. Uh, you don't even have to see it. You just have to report it. Job done. Well done. Uh, and and um, obviously, I'm being highly reductive. Yeah. Uh, but I, But nonetheless... Yeah, comedy is definitely hard. I remember coming back in, talking to one of the editors on, on Veep when we were starting off again and saying to him, um, who's a very dull Scott and uh, a lovely guy, an incredibly talented comedy editor. But I said, how was your summer? He went, oh, it was dreadful. I edited a drama. I went, oh, right. What, what was so bad about that? Well, actor crying in a stairwell. How long am I supposed to leave that? Five seconds? 15 seconds? Comedy? That's too long. That's too short. That's what you need. Get out. Wow. And that is really interesting. Spot on. Yeah. Spot on. But he's, it, 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 there's a precision to comedy that you don't have to have in, in drama. And, and also there is an understanding by an audience on some level, even if it's only subconscious, that there's some timer in their head about when they laughed last. Yes. Which yeah. is why people don't put jokes in, oddly enough. The uh, reason people don't put jokes in things, I think, is because jokes are a big risk. Because if a person doesn't get the joke, you've made a joke that's not funny rather than making no joke at all and yeah. relying on some sort of social awkwardness is usually what mm. people have these days. Mm. Or, 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 um, or actually an awful lot of comedy, particularly in movies now, is about people being slightly inappropriate. Yeah, and that's that's where the that's where the joke There's an is. Agreement that, that that that's funny, rather than actually it. making a joke. Jokes have to be a little bit scattergun. Some have to be bigger than others. Yeah. Some have to be funnier than others, and, and and all of that. But if you decide you're going to cover everything you're doing in jokes, you are leaving yourself a hostage to fortune in some respects. In that people go, well, that wasn't funny. That thing they just did wasn't funny. Yeah. Rather than you know just letting the thing go by and waiting for the waiting for the next funny one yeah. again. This is probably subconscious rather than, than actually a, a conscious thought process. But it is true. And I think that it's interesting because actually sometimes you have to understand it's important to not have a laugh at some, yes. in, in some moment. And that's a really, really hard lesson to learn. Yeah. I remember learning that in stand-up, that because the standard unit of, of stand-up is the hour, effectively, in terms of stand-up Edinburgh. shows. Your Edinburgh, Edinburgh hour. Yeah. Right. 
Yeah. So you're writing these hour-long shows, and you're going to take them to Edinburgh, and you just want to make them as funny as possible. So you want as many laughs in that show as you as you can possibly fit. As it turns out, that's not quite the correct thing to do, right. because if you try and just go laugh, 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 laugh for sixty minutes, eventually, around about forty to forty-five minutes, your audience will tire and you will find feel them drifting away from you and your response will be to try harder and to be on the balls of your feet and leaning over at them and really trying to get them in and just shoving your jokes in their direction as hard as you possibly can and no matter what you do it won't work they will fade and fade and fade because you've not given them a rest you have to build in it turns out something around 40 to 45 minutes that lets them off for two minutes you have to let people off for a moment otherwise they just sort of don't know where they are a little bit oh we're talking about here is 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 solid craft which is something which is not what you think it would be and if you're going to talk about something that victoria would gave me yeah growing up was watching him going, you are working really hard. You're a grafter and a crafter. This is a very high bar for me to hit if I want to do this for a living. But also the sense of, if you get this right, listen to that crowd, listen to the delight you're giving. Yeah. She was so big. She reached an audience that was audible on those shows. So loved. And it was because all that hard work was so appreciated. Someone who you'd think of as someone who pleased themselves was just working yeah. because they were serving an audience. Yes. And they were. it's interesting, there are moments where she's, laugh, where, where she's laughing and they've left them in. in sketches. <laughs> There's about two or three across the whole thing where, where she is actually having a, a, a slight moment, usually when she's faced with Julie Walters. Yes. yes. And they've left that in. And there is a general, there's a sense of enjoyment. One of my favourite sketches is it's by no means the funniest sketch. At the end of... I think it's the it's the penultimate show of the first series. They sing a goodbye song, mm. and uh, she starts to sing this song. And it's a bit you know that something's wrong because it's not as good as her other songs. And some, <laughs> it's a bit too serious, and and she sort of seems to be genuinely saying goodbye in quite a heartfelt way, which seems unlike anything else. Yeah. That's so she starts to do it, and then um, and then she's joined by Julie, and then she's joined by Celia, and then Duncan comes along, and then some dude. Just walks up and then um, Celia goes, "Yeah, sorry, that was uh, he's, he's with me. It's just a it's just a casual thing. It's a uh, uh, and then and then more and more people turn up. Uh, some like some people who know Julie turn up and then there's like a band. Other people, it's um, sort of convenient. They haven't slept together for ages. Did they give you that bubble bath you left? I came out of terrible rush. I had penicillin. And eventually, the the whole stage is covered, and and Julie and Victoria and Celia go get out of there. But all the time that other people are sort of joining them, they're just having this conversation where they're talking to each other and using yeah. each other's names, and they're clearly having. A lot of fun together, and you get the sense of, oh, this is a gang who who like to knock about together. Which is one of the reasons that I love that that sketch so much. That's also a, a secret of comedy: is it will not replace anything. It, it won't help you if the if the foundations are no good and if the walls aren't solid. But if you can have the gang yeah. really get on and have a have a rapport, you've got something extra. 
That's why Veep's good, I think. Yeah. One, yeah. one of the reasons that Veep's good is those people love each other. What a happy family. Well, we, all, we were all on sitcom camp for a long yeah, time yeah. together because we shot in Baltimore. So everybody was away. So everybody was in each other's pockets and, and, and you know, was a big family. And it's a gang you want to hang out with. If you see them having yeah. a good time, there's an immediate rapport with the audience at home to go, yeah. hey, those guys are, are, uh, look like fun. Yeah, and it doesn't matter that the the characters all hate each other yeah. and are all trying to undermine yeah. each other. The fact is, some there's something about their performances that is better because that gang. Yeah, likes you, each I other. mean, you can even tell in the in the making of Acorn Antiques when they are, which is just again, she's found another layer she can have at the expense of gags, which is who these people are, who the actors are, yeah. and they're all, they're all they're um, so all they're all and they're all appalling, aren't they? They're just yeah. the most dreadful bunch of human beings, and and that is in itself yeah. another joy because but as you're watching it and they're being horrible to and about each other, you can also tell <laughs> the real actors yeah. are enjoying the shit out of it. Yeah, they're having yeah, a yeah. great time. Yeah, yeah. The, the joke that hadn't occurred to me before. The joke there is that you know they're not really like that. That's not really what Julie Walters is like. That's not really what and and you're yeah. enjoying then again your gang and you go. Yeah. This is the gang. This is uh, end of turn. They got to bring games in. They get to play another yeah, yeah, character. Yeah, yeah. You're watching them. This is. I said is Lord Delfont for, for you. you. Yeah, <laughs> honestly, the rhythms God. of that. That I think I could. Yeah, the, the Lord's Prayer. I'd struggle with, but I can probably do behind the scenes at Acorn Antiques from the beginning really to end. Funny. Do you know it's, uh, isn't what, Paul Heine brilliant in that yeah, as well? Yeah, that's yeah. great. But, isn't but he? that's because he knows that the, the the key is just play, just do what you would do mm. yeah. if you were doing one of your um, uh, in the, in the deep, deep end. end. Yeah. Deep if you're doing that, just do that, and everything will be fine. Don't yeah. try, don't try anything else. Don't try and be funny. That's, don't do anything that's you would normally into the gang. do. But I think you, as a viewer, if he was trying to join in with what the gang do, you'd go fuck off, Paul Heine. That's the gang. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yes, here are the limits. You can come and you can watch the gang because we're all watching the gang, but I don't want you to be in the gang. I think that's a lovely thing to say, that you've got the centre of this, the core of this, is that a very lonely, lone genius who didn't have a family found a family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely yeah. beautiful. Because oh, when you yeah. think of Victoria Wood, you think of that family that she built around her. And she is someone who said, I'm a lonely, shy outsider who grew up on the side of a hill yeah. with a piano and a sandwich. And to go... But when I think of Victoria Wood now, I think of all those people. Of all her. those people, yeah. Johnny Vegas said the loveliest thing about her. He said she she reminded him of somebody who's really bright but only lives two streets away. <laughs> <laughs> and so go, yeah, that's it, isn't it? That's yeah. really nice. You're out of my league and in my neighbourhood, you know? That's really nice. Yeah. <laughs> but she, I think that surely has to be where we finish. That is too beautiful, beautiful. to go anymore. Yeah, That's brilliant. always finished with Johnny Vegas. It's one of the rules of comedy. Thank you for bringing Victoria Wood to see on TV. Thanks. Thanks, Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Chris. Like a genuine Picasso, Martin, but I would have to see it to be sure. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>